It's good to hear the little voices as they go out. Today we are uh, entering into a season of Advent, and so we're going to step out of our sermon series that we have been in in Colossians, and we're going to take uh, a little time to think about what Advent is about and the purpose for which it has been embraced throughout the Christian history of the, of the church. And uh, this first Sunday is, a, as you heard earlier, a day that focuses on hope and on prophecy. And so we're going to do a four-week series um, for this uh, next Advent season and for the month of December, where we'll take a look at uh, today, we can think about the prophecies that pointed us to the Messiah. Uh, on the 9th, next week, we'll look at preparation and the role that John the Baptist had to play in making way for the coming of Jesus. On the 16th, we'll take a look at the, the virgin birth and the significance of that particular truth that we embrace in, in our understanding of how Jesus came into this world. Uh, 23rd, we'll look at some proclamation and some messengers, the angels, the shepherds, and the magi. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, we meet together at 5 o'clock. So in case you're thinking about making plans, we'd love to have you join us. But we'll take a look at Jesus' birth and uh, his presence among, as you've heard this morning, with us is God with us, and he is through Jesus. And so today we just stop and take, and take a look at Advent. Advent is an interesting season. Maybe you grew up in a time or a culture that embraced an Advent season, or maybe you didn't. I, I didn't grow up in a, in a church culture that embraced the, the season of Advent, so it was a little strange for me to, to begin to understand there's um, Christian churches around the world that embrace a whole four-week season of the, the Sundays that lead up to Christmas as a way of preparing. And I think there's, there's two things about Advent that I would say. It comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which simply means the coming. So this, this is a season in which we embrace the coming of Christ. And the particular ways that we do that are in anticipation and longing. So there's an anticipation of us celebrating together the goodness of Christ's coming. Uh, we celebrate his birth. Um, and I did grow up in a home where we actually made a birthday cake for Jesus. I don't know if any of you have done that, but how many of you did? If Just curious. If you did, any of you? Yeah, a couple of you did. Um, we make a birthday cake. We sing happy birthday to Jesus and look forward to the day of, that we actually get to stand in his presence. So there's a sense of anticipation that builds as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus. But the Christian church has embraced something else about Advent, which is the sense of longing. The sense of, yes, Jesus has come in the flesh, and yet we don't see him right now. And we, we know that he has promised to come again. And so we long to be with him. We yearn for that day, as, as Ian just pointed to a minute ago. Uh, Jesus is yearning to be together with his people. And we, as his people, are yearning to be together with him. So he promised... Um, that he would come back. We know Jesus was here, he left, but he also left us with a promise. He would return. And that sense of anticipation and longing is what we're embracing during this season of Advent. So here's what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was crucified. He said this in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want you to hear that. I think we probably need to hear that this morning. Jesus wants you to be with him. 
He said, I'm going to get things ready for when you arrive. And, and I want you to be with me. So if I'm going to get things ready, then I'm going to come back. I'm not going to go get everything ready and then not come back for you. I want you to be with me where I am. That's what Jesus said. He also said something else. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And I can estimate there's probably 25% of us in this room who probably had troubled hearts today. We've probably had some difficult challenges that arose over the past week and things are hard. And Jesus knows this world is difficult. And so he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So my prayer is that as we think about all that we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about, that your troubles can just lay them aside. That you'll be able to just say, yes, this was a hard week. Yes, my life presently is difficult. But can you just park it for a minute? Guys are really good at this, are we not? Men can compartmentalize stuff and just park it over here and have no other conversation about it. Women, that's more difficult for you, understand? But I'm hoping that all of us for just a few minutes can say, I just want to leave my troubles to the back of my mind for a few minutes and just focus on, on what? The, the one word that I would invite you to think about is the hope that comes from Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. So that's what we're going to think about today. But hope, hope that things can be different. Hope that the troubles of this world will one day be over. Hope that the difficulties soon will be past. And that even in the middle of difficulties, you would this morning be able to experience some joy from be with his people, from singing, uh, some of these songs, the traditions, the beginning of the, of the season that ought to remind us of the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us. That's my prayer today. So I want to, uh, one other thing that Jesus said I want to share with you. It's John 16, he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you're going to have lots of troubles, but take heart, I have overcome them. The goodness of Jesus coming in the flesh is that he overcame all of the obstacles that would keep us from enjoying his presence. He's overcome the difficulties of this world. All of them. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, whatever the difficulties are, the troubles that we're facing. He has overcome everything, even death itself. And so we have great hope. So one day we're going to be with him and he promised to come back and get us. He said it several times. And I think this is important for us to remember because right before Jesus ascended into heaven, two angels showed up and said it one more time as if we're hard of hearing. And sometimes we are. We are hard of hearing. I'm hard of hearing. I have to get hearing aids in order to help me hear. Spiritually, we need help. And so as a reminder, I just want to share this verse too. Acts chapter 1, two angels show up and as Jesus is ascending up into heavens, the angels say to Jesus' disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus whom was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus himself shared that he would come back. He made a promise personally. Then it's reaffirmed with angels standing and reminding the disciples he's coming back. He's going to come back the same way he came. So we're living in the in-between time which sometimes can seem incredibly difficult. 
And yet we have a spiritual father who is with us, who understands our troubles, and who would say, I want you to be able to rejoice. And so the, the, what's the confidence? What hope do we have that Jesus can keep his promise? Because it's been a really long time. And some people would say he's not coming back. You guys are weird for thinking Jesus is going to return. And I want to share with you this morning that the prophecies of the Old Testament give me confidence to think that Jesus will come back. Right? How can we have confidence? How can we be sure that he's going to do what he said he's going to do? How can we be certain he has the power to make good on the promise? My answer is the prophecies. It's the prophecies that point to the power of Jesus and should give all of us hope. So I want to share a few with you this morning. So today, we're just going to think about the days of prophecy. The little sermon series we're we're calling the, the first days of Jesus. But what we understand as you begin to read his story is there's a backstory. Something was going on way before Jesus actually showed up. So we have confidence in in understanding that his power is able to effect what he had said. So we understand the prophecies, when when you go and look, which I did this week, I went back and I sat down with all four of the gospels and I reread them. I don't know if you've done this lately, but I discovered something I hadn't seen before. As I went and read them, every one of of the gospels begin prior to the birth of Jesus. They all point back to some point in history which is very interesting to me. So Matthew, for example, he goes all the way back to Abraham. Mark begins by quoting Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before Jesus. Luke starts by telling the story of John the Baptist, who was born six months before Jesus. And then John essentially starts quoting the book of Genesis. So every gospel writer, and what's the point of the gospels? to communicate the life and ministry of Jesus. They begin way back in history. So I think the point is that the beginning of the story of Jesus doesn't actually begin with his birth, but way beyond it. God was doing something before the arrival of Jesus. He was was pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And so that gives me hope that Jesus has the power to effect what he said. So I'm going to give you... Depending on time. I I came up with seven prophecies that point specifically to us understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the one who fulfilled all of the Old Testament pointers to Messiah. That Jesus is the Messiah. So I'm going to give you an Old Testament passage, New Testament fulfillment. That's what we're going to do. So for example, God announced beforehand, which only God can do... He has the power to announce in advance what he's going to do, and then he alone has the power to bring it about. That's one of the things that makes God unique. He can say in advance, I'm going to do this or that, and there's nothing to stop him because he has all the power in order to effect what he has planned. And so he announces in advance what he's up to so that when it happens, we know it's from him and not merely coincidence. That's what God wants to do. He says, I'm going to tell you in advance what I'm going to do so that you realize it's me who's doing it when it happens. So he announced in in advance in Amos chapter 3 that God reveals nothing. So that's the purpose of prophets is to point out what God's doing. He says, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
So in the Old Testament, when God was going to do something, he wanted everyone to know that it was him that was doing it. He said, here's my prophet. He would tell a prophet. That prophet would then speak a word, and then the people would understand when it happened that it was truly from God or not. And so that becomes a test by which we discern whether or not God is actually active. There's a couple of of verses in Isaiah which God points to this particular aspect of his power in order to demonstrate his truthfulness. Uh, Isaiah 41, 22, God is talking to Israel and he is saying to the false idols, or saying to Israel who's worshiping false idols, "Let's, let's, let's compare the difference between your idols that you're worshiping and me. And he says, bring them. Let's bring them and tell us what is to happen. Let them come and and tell us what's going to happen tomorrow, is what he's saying. So he says, tell us the former things in the past that we can understand them and that we may come to know their outcome, that we may understand the purpose, is what he's saying. Or declare to us the things that are to come, meaning tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. Predict the future. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. So God is saying that's the unique prerogative of God is to predict accurately. Only God has the power to do that. He says it again in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There's none like me. In what way is there none like God? Here it is, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all of my purpose. The prophecies in the Old Testament, when they are fulfilled, ought to give us immense confidence that it's God who's at work, not coincidence. So if the fulfillment of prophecy happens, it should give you hope. So the question is, did Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecies? Did he unfold accurately and rightly things that God pointed to in the Old Testament and said, this is what's going to happen? And the answer is, he did. And in fact, this one quality is how you distinguish whether or not a person is truly from the Lord and has spoken truly or whether he's a false prophet or he's lying. Because have you ever had anybody show up to you and say, God told me, you know, this or that. And you struggle with that, right? Because God hadn't told me. So how am I going to know whether this or that is true? Well, here's, here's what uh, instruction God gives Moses. He says to the people, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. A prophet has spoken presumptuously. So if a prophet comes and says, tomorrow we're going out to dinner and I'm going to pay for the bill, yada, yada, yada. He predicts something. If it doesn't happen exactly like the prophet said it, then God says, don't listen to him. He's not from me. That didn't come from me. And it reminds me, uh, sometimes people who have spiritual insight, God reveals things to, and we should, what do we do with those people? For example, my wife said, you know, the Lord told me we were going to get married. And he didn't tell me that yet. She didn't tell me that until much later, but the Lord revealed to her, I think you, sh- you two should get married. I'm glad she didn't say anything because it would probably freak me out. But sometimes the Lord gives a sense of what he's going to do to his people. You might have experienced this in a small way. He, he, he sort of warns us something's happened. It's going to happen in order to prepare you. And we, in our discernment, we sometimes talk about these things together like, I get this feeling. I'm not quite sure if it's from the Lord or not. How do you know? If it comes true, then you know it's from the Lord. 
So that's the point of the prophecies is to help us understand when God is at work and when he's not. When he's not. This is kind of the point of Advent. It's to point us to get ready for the coming of, of a Savior. It's to help us be mentally alert in, in anticipation and longing and to look forward to him. So Jesus in coming has fulfilled several prophecies. So what are they? I'll just quickly list them and then we'll go through them. God announced beforehand that he would send someone, a Messiah, who he would appoint to reverse the curse upon the earth that came from the sin of Adam and Eve. He then also said this person would crush Satan's head while getting his heel bruised. He also said this person would carry out the blessings of Abraham to all of the families of the earth. This Messiah would be a descendant of David who would inherit his authority to reign on, on, the, king, on the throne of Israel forever. And he would be one who was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, and would also spend some time in Egypt. These are all prophecies that pointed to what does the Messiah really look like? How do we know it's him? And so when God fulfills these things, we can say with confidence, God is at work. This is not just a coincidence. So here they are. The first announcement that God made, he was at work from the very beginning of the curse. God announced that he would undo it one day. Um, on the day that Adam and Eve sinned, God announced his attention to reverse the curse and crush Satan's head. Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Then in the New Testament, we find this, Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning he had to be human. This person had to be like us. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. So something crazy happened. God sent Jesus in order to die so that by dying, he could destroy Satan's power. He could crush the curse. He could kill the curse. Death is the curse of sin. And so the curse is undone when sin is atoned for. And so that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has atoned for our sin. And so Satan has no grounds of accusation anymore. He cannot tell you, if you're trusting in Jesus, that you're guilty. Because in Christ, our sins are paid for. So we have hope that Satan's teeth are removed through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The second promise that God pointed to for Messiah is that he would be a descendant of Abraham who would bring great blessing to all nations. Genesis 22:18. In your offspring, God talking to Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And then Peter preaches this after Jesus' ascension into heaven. He says to the, to the children of Israel, you are the sons of the prophets and the, of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, meaning resurrected Jesus, sent him to you first, to the Jews first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So when a person, through Jesus, turns away from his sins and to God, the blessings of Abraham then flow to him. All of the promises that God said to Abraham come to us because we then become spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith. We put our faith in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament promise. The third one, God announced beforehand that he would send someone who's the heir of the throne of David a descendant of David. And so in Isaiah 9, 7, we heard it this morning. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So God promised to send someone who was a physical descendant of David who would have the authority to reign forever. If you're going to reign forever, there's one thing that's required. You've got to be alive forever. Jesus rose from the dead. He is also a descendant of David. And where do we find this? In Matthew chapter 1, the, the passage we all forget. We all neglect it. How many of you, I promise, if you're reading through the Bible and you come to a genealogy, do you skip it? Sure you do. 90% of you, well, you're just not honest enough to say it. And we're in church. We skip the genealogies. We're like, who cares? John begat this person, begat that person, and yada, yada, I know, it doesn't matter. It does matter. And here's one place it matters greatly. So here's Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And I want to share a little story with you to, to give you a little encouragement not to skip over portions of the Bible because they're important. Every, we believe all of God's word has a plan and a purpose. And you ought, to, you ought to read it, even the genealogies. And this came true to me when I, I read a story about a tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Bimurian tribe, who in the 70s, a family with new, uh, sorry, Wycliffe Bible translators went to this little tiny tribe. There were only a couple of hundred of them left. Wars, they were fighting, they were killing each other. And this family went to translate the Bible to this little tiny tribe because there's this promise in Revelation that says, before the throne of God will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So every people group on the planet will have representation before the throne of God at the end of days. How's that gonna happen? Well, somebody's gotta go tell them about Jesus. Right, so this family does that. And we learned this week that will cost some of us our lives, right? This family went to spend time translating the, the, the gospel to this people group. They had to learn their language first, create an alphabet, and then they began translating the book of Matthew. It took several years. Well, guess what they did? They skipped the first 17 verses of Matthew because it's unimportant. It's genealogies, right? And so they got finished with the book of Matthew and uh, they're almost all done. And the, trans, the missionary's wife said, so you're finished with Matthew? And he said, yep. And she said, well, what about the first 17 verses? Did you ever get that? He said, no, not really. So he and his language helper sat down this one afternoon and began translating those 17 verses. And his helper, his language helper, was unusually quiet. He didn't make any comments like he usually did. And when he got to the end... He said to the missionary, he goes, there's going to be an important meeting tonight and you need to come and bring what we have just translated. And the missionary was quite surprised at this. This is unusual, but of course he said, okay, I will be there. And so he arrived that night at the little house where they were all meeting and it was packed, jam-packed. There was no room. There were more people from the tribe gathered that night than he had ever seen gathered with this, pe with this little people group. And so the, the, the language helper says, you need to read to them what we translated today. So he, quite surprised, and all eyes are on him. So as he began to read, the room got silent. And so he read, 
These are the ancestors of Jesus, Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And as he's reading, he feels the people in the room beginning to move forward to him. He he senses this movement, but he keeps reading. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And, And closer and closer they get until as he finishes verse 17, there's no room around him. He's completely surrounded by these people. And one man with this deep look of incredulity looks at him and says, why didn't you tell us this before? So remember, it's been a couple of years they've been translating the book of Matthew. They didn't start with the genealogy. They started with the birth of Jesus. And he says, why didn't you tell us this before? Another man said, no one bothers to write down the ancestors of spirit beings. Another said, Jesus must be a real man on earth and not just white man's magic. And then the chief said, then what the missionary has taught us is true. The whole tribe embraced Jesus as the Messiah because they realized nobody makes up genealogies. Why bother? They had been under the assumption, they weren't sure that Jesus really was a real person as the missionaries had been teaching them for these couple of years, telling them about who he was until they get to this portion of God's word and then they hear this and like, this is, we record our genealogies and this one is much longer than ours. He must be real. All of God's word gives us hope. It is powerful to transform your life. So the Old Testament prophecies point to someone real, who came, who lived, who died. And there are specific details about his life, which Jesus lived out. And so we can have great confidence. This is a real person. Who we're talking about is a person that was planned from the beginning of time. And he fulfilled all of God's promises. Like, fourth, this promise that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 says this, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah was writing 700 years before Jesus showed up. And so we have uh, this, this conversation between an angel and Mary that's recorded for us in Luke chapter one. So Jesus is gonna be born, the Messiah is gonna be born of a virgin? How does that work? Mary's confused too. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Matthew then explains that all of this took place in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Does God have the power to bring about what he predicts? Only God can do what he predicts. And so the Holy Spirit grants Mary the ability to conceive apart from natural consummation. So Jesus was born of a virgin. And if you think that's not true, that didn't happen, how do we believe this? In an argument Jesus had, or I should say a discussion, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with the Jews and he's claiming to be the son of God. And they say to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality like you is the implication. They know the story. Mary was pregnant before they got married. Even his enemies knew this. 
Jesus was a part of of the power of God being manifested in reality. So he was born of a virgin. That's another prophecy that Jesus fulfills. Fifth, where was he going to be born? Now, how many of you can control where you're going to be born? Did you choose? Mark, did you choose where you were born? No. Who can do this? Only God. Mark, Micah chapter 2, uh, 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, uh, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient of days. And guess where Jesus was born? You know, Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth in Judea to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary. So God orchestrates a national census in order to get Joseph to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born there and fulfill prophecy so that we would know Jesus really is who he said he is. He really is the Son of God. And then God announced beforehand through the prophet Hosea, who was writing about the same time as Isaiah, around 700 BC, that his chosen son would, like ancient Israel, come out of Egypt. So this is what Matthew 2, 13 and 15 says. When they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take up the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, he took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's a quote from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. God is fulfilling prophecy. He's helping us see Jesus is the chosen one. He is the one through whom is my son. And then lastly, God announced about 600 years before Jesus through Jeremiah about the death of the children that we read about that happened under Herod's harsh and very violent, brutal paranoia. Matthew 2, 16. Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and he killed the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two and under. Why? This was to fulfill the, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Here's seven prophecies that point you to, I hope, give you a strong conviction that God has enough power to bring about what he predicts. And only God has that power. And we see his prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Nobody else fulfilled all of these prophecies. And this is just the beginning. This is just the first days of Jesus. There are so many more that are fulfilled through his life and his ministry that we don't have time to go through them. But my question to you is, do you trust him? Do you you let your soul rest in the power of this God who can bring about all of these things? What about your troubles? Some of you are troubled. Do you trust that God can take care of your troubles? If he can orchestrate national censuses and cause people to be born in particular cities and enemies to do exactly what he predicts, he can take care of your issues. And so do we rest in him? Do we look forward to his coming Are we longing for that day when we will stand in the presence of Jesus? I I pray you would worship him. My hope is that you would ascribe to him glory and honor. So we're going to sing. And I'm going to invite you. Can you, once again, if there are troubles in your life, can you just lay them down for a minute? And as we sing, can you just worship the Lord?
Can you, can you praise him for his power, his might, his greatness, and his goodness? And would you in your heart say, Jesus, come fully in my heart. Come today and give me strength to endure my trouble and rely on the power of his greatness. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for announcing beforehand what your intentions were. Thank you for so many prophecies that point to specific details about the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, so that we would know he's the one. And Lord, I ask you, let every heart in this room cherish him. Please let us not be drawn away by the things that can easily cause us to be distracted. We can fall for the things that we see. Lord, I pray that you'd give us spiritual eyes to worship you in all of your power. From a power that was at work from the very beginning of time until this very day, governing whose parents as who, seeing to it that all of your promises were fulfilled. And Jesus accomplished that for us. Lord, let our faith rest in him. Let our trust rest in him. Let our confidence that you can take care of all of our troubles be completely in your power and yours alone. Jesus, we love you. You are great and we worship you. Amen.